came and did the uh, the, the Melchizedek priesthood first and then came back and did the apostleship. That's possible. Um, I don't know. But, but I, I kinda, it kind of tends towards saying, I think Peter, James, and John come that summer after. Yeah? And the word elder might have meant something different. I think then. the word elder did mean something different back then. Than it does to us now. That's right. Because we have in our set, one of the parlance that we're trying to get passed up just in this last weekend, and we were having to do it very carefully even in the way that we talked yesterday, was the fact that we have this... We have this uh, uh, schema the way that we look at the priesthood and we go okay a kid is a deacon and then what do we do in the priesthood we advance him to the office of a teacher then after that he is advanced in the office of a priest an advanced sort we're trying not to use that word even though in the ironic priesthood it sort of makes some sense because a, a teacher has more authority than the deacon does and the priest has more authority than the teacher does but we tended to take that framework and put it on the Melchizedek priesthood and say a man is an elder and now we're going to advance him to be a high priest and that's not true that's one of the one of the things that will happen in the combining of the priesthoods is the uh, priesthood quorums is that we're saying that uh, for instance these 70s these uh, general authorities who were released in emeritus status they're going to go back to their home ward and what quorum are they going to join elders. the elders quorum because they're an elder elder christopherson did say that they would not be advanced in the melchizedek yeah we're trying to not use the word advancement, but we have always done that. You know, I will be an elder until I'm advanced to be a high priest. Uh, and so, so we're, we're trying that there's a there's a way that we refer to that that is changing that I think is is kind of cool. Okay, all right. So, so questions on any of this? I, one of the things that I've tried to do in the historical background of the church is that there are a variety of places where critics attack the church. And I, just, I think it's incumbent on us that we have the luxury of this class and as long as we can do it and, and the depth we can dig into it, I expect you guys to kind of be a beacon in the wards and stakes out there that you come to know certain things that you can refute certain critics because you have more background knowledge. I just think we have a responsibility to do that. So, so we're going to be, that's why as we're going through this whole course, there are going to be a variety of things that we're looking at, like the different versions of the first vision. Uh, and I will, by the way, and I was thinking about it this uh, sometime next semester, I'll give you, I'll give you a advance warning the week we're going to do polygamy okay <laughs> those that may not want to show up for that one but I think it's a topic that we've got I'm not anxious to do it but I, I think it's one that we need to clearly understand what we now know about Joseph Smith and polygamy yeah I know the date's important but I think the circumstances are important too I mean you know all the pictures that's all very sanitized they're nice cleanly fresh and they're getting priesthood conferred upon them, but it says here that they were weary and worn, and they were exhausted, and they've been going all night, and and then, you know, and Oliver Calvary is about, you know, about, about to up, and then, and then this happens. Yeah, I, I, that she's bringing up a good point, and that is that in the looking at the dates of this, don't don't pass up the circumstance, and the, the uh, that the Lord gave them the Melchizedek priesthood in their extremity, that they were being hounded and persecuted, and they're exhausted, and at that moment, um, in fact, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, um, and it'll be fun. I don't. I hope we'll get to it next year. Um, <laughs> Why not? Who knows? Um, talking about the fact that after Joseph had been sitting in Liberty Jail for months, he writes a letter to his sister uh, and he says, I'm anxious 
to get out of here and preach to the saints one more the plan of God's plan for them in other words what he's saying is I'm learning things in here in my in my adversity that that is new to me and I want to teach the saints because I got new stuff I've had things revealed to me that I haven't taught previously okay so sometimes in our extremities the Lord gives us blessings and I think that's certainly the case here yeah, always he gives it to us in our... Yeah, okay. So, let me ask... So, so let me ask just in general. If you look at the history of the church, how does the Lord tend to respond when the church is under opposition? When church is being attacked? What's the Lord's response? How does he handle external attacks to the church? What does he do? Let me give you an example. Um, after Missouri, the saints are dragging themselves back across the Mississippi. We're like frozen, drowned rats in Quincy, Illinois. Uh, Joseph is, is just barely getting out of escaping Liberty Jail. The church is scattered. A number of people couldn't make it uh, out of Missouri. Some people left the church. Uh, the church is just attacked and scattered and bedraggled. And we're, and we're kind of catching our breath in Illinois before we actually start up Nauvoo. Right at that moment... What does Joseph Smith do to further the church? Missionary work. Specifically in that moment with John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff and Brigham Young whose families are lying in a ditch. He says to them, the Lord has called you where? To England. You know, when you're wondering if the church is even going to survive the winter. And he's saying, the Lord is calling you to England. And, and there's a parallel now. Opposition is starting to really pick up here at this moment in church history. We're in 1830. Uh, we have little branches of the church now, 90 days after the organization. We got little branches in South Bainbridge. We got little branches in Fayette. We got another branch in, in Waterloo. We have another branch in Manchester. There are about 40 or 50 saints in each one of these areas. And opposition is, in, is increasing. What are we going to do? Is the church going to get snuffed out this little flame is just flickering and it's about to be snuffed out what does the Lord do right at this moment missionary work and he's going to it's going to be an audacious who would have guessed who would have seen this coming moment okay so this is the moment where we get the mission to the Lamanites now Let's let's turn for just a second to uh, DNC twenty eight. We were kind of referring to this uh, last time. Um, that the other, the other possibility to, the, to snuffing out the flame of the gospel was the fact that we had some internal things going on. Hiram Page is seeing uh, messages on his seer stone. Oliver has to, is then called to kind of call Hiram uh, Page and say it's not really true. But in the middle of all of this, I want you to see what the Lord is going to tell him. Hiram Page, the, the, uh, the uh, pseudo-revelations that he was receiving had an awful lot to do with where... Uh, two things. One, about the Lamanites, and two, the, the, where the city of Zion would be located. Now, let me ask you, let, let, let me stop for a sec. Why would the saints that are fledgling in the church, why would they be so interested in Indians and the city of Zion? 
They are bedraggled, sure, sure. There was a sense, Party Pratt is one of those that says, uh, the gospel of Christ must be preached to the red man. That's what's going to get Party Pratt to Kirtland, is he's, he wants to go preach to the red man and bring them Christ. Okay, so that's, that's true. Why else? Yeah, there, there is a set. There was a there was a kind of millennial fervor. Remember, we're talking about a young nation, uh, kind of the divine destiny, and here comes the new Jerusalem, and here it comes, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> Happy kiddo. Um, and in the middle of all of that, there is a sense that we gotta bring, we got to bring the gospel to these poor bedraggled Indians. Okay? But the New Jerusalem and the Lamanites, where's that coming from? Yeah. Okay, let me remind you. Let's go back to the title page of the Book of Mormon. What are they now reading? They're getting their hands on the Book of Mormon for the first time. and They're, they're going to start with the title page. What's the title page say? Therefore, it's an abridgment of the record of the people of Nephi and also the Lamanites. Written to who? The Lamanites. The Lamanites. Oh, really? Oh, so we have this book and it's written to them. Wow. Uh, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, written by commandment, uh, that they might not be destroyed. Um, now, which is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their father. In other words, they had in their possession a book that was supposed to go to the Lamanites. Now, the reason they want to take the gospel to the Lamanites is partly altruistic. We, we, think, we think the red man should have Christ. Yes. But, but there's another reason behind this. And it's not as altruistic as you might think. They're pretty powerful and they could protect them if they were on their side. Yeah, we want to rally the Indians to our side. Sure. Okay. Now, let, let, let me just say it this way. Isn't it interesting that how many, why in the world are so many Christians really kind of excited about helping the Jews get back to Jerusalem? Doesn't that sound like kind of a very wonderful thing to help the Jews get back to Jerusalem? Why are so many Christians anxious that the Jews make a liar, go return, go back to the land of your fathers? Is, is it like that would be a really nice thing? Yes, we have to get the Jews to the to back to Jerusalem so that we can usher in the millennium. Get them there. That'll happen. Jerusalem will get built. Awesome. Okay. So I want you to see the parallel with this one. The, the parallel is certainly here. Why do we want to preach the gospel to the Lamanites? Why do we want the gospel preached to the Lamanites? Yes. And what happens if you read the Book of Mormon, what are the Lamanites supposed to do? Build the New Jerusalem. We have to preach the gospel to the Lamanites so that they can build the New Jerusalem so that we can usher in the second coming. That's the parallel. We've got to get to the Indians. We've got to convert them so they build the new Jerusalem so Christ can come again. That's, that's the link. We've got to get it done. Cool. 
Well, let's do it then. So they, so these people that are reading the Book of Mormon literally and just seeing it, going, "Oh my gosh, this is about this is about Lamanites and Indians. And we got to get them there." You're going to really see that in just a second with Kirtland. When they show up in Kirtland, they're now reading the Book of Mormon. They become a little Indian crazy. <laughs> Actually, they become a lot Indian crazy, and their sacrament meetings are like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> get out of the way! They're bizarre." <laughs> okay, we can get there. Just a sec. Okay, so. They are, they are reading the Book of Mormon. They're discovering that it's about the Lamanites. And he's going to be told, this is back to, to uh, d 28. And now behold, verse 8, I say unto you that you shall go unto the Lamanites and preach my gospel unto them. And insomuch as they receive thy teachings, thou shalt cause my church to be established among them. And thou, sh and thou Oliver, shalt have revelations, but write them not by way of commandment. And behold, I say unto you, it is not revealed. And no man knoweth where the, old, where the city Zion shall be built, but it, be, it shall be given hereafter. After. Oliver gets to do two things. Number one, we're going to preach the gospel to the Lamanites, and that may hasten, but right along with preaching the Lamanites is there, the Lamanites' purpose, which is to build the new Jerusalem, and, and, we're going to, and it's going to go from there. Well, that's pretty cool. Okay, that's, wow. So for Oliver, this is like, wow, you just got handed, like, the big job. Now, in their mind at this moment, where were the Lamanites? You need to know your U.S. history to know where the Lamanites were. This is 1830. Guess what's happening in the country in 1830? Andrew Jackson, 1829. Uh, Thomas Jefferson has been allowing Indian tribes to, to create sovereign nations inside states. Um, Andrew Jackson's interpretation of that is that we are a nation... Remember, the Civil War hasn't happened yet. We are a nation of sovereign nations. <laughs> we are a confederation of sovereign nations, of sovereign states. You don't create a nation inside a nation. So we need to do something about the Indian thing where they're creating nations inside states. And by the way, we'd kind of like their land. <laughs> so what happens here? They pass a very controversial act at, that, at this moment in, 18, in April 1830, uh, the Indian Removal Act which we know as the Trail of Tears. We are going to round up all the Indians, like in Georgia and the South especially, and we're going to move them outside the nation. And by the way, the, na the nation ends where? Independence, Missouri. What's on the other side? Kansas, Oklahoma, where we're sending them out to the territories and we're going to round them up and send them there. So we're going to tear them from their, from their ancestral lands and we're going to drive them out. So we're, we're plopping all of the Indian nations out there somewhere. So when, when Oliver Cowdery is going to be called to go preach to the Lamanites, where are the Lamanites? On the other side of independence, they're 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 moving. They're not completely there yet, but it's everything is moving that way to put them there, and that's where Oliver Cowdery is going to go. Because their understanding is that's where the Lamanites were. Their understanding back then was is that the American Indians were all the descendants of Lehi. That makes them Lamanites, and that's where they're going. We 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 now. If you look at the Book of Mormon, you'll see that it says that uh, with the American Indians that they are that Lehi is among the ancestors of that. But anyway. <laughs>
So that's where he's going, okay? Uh, they're heading that direction. Yeah? I have a question. It's kind of like a sidetrack that I'd like to ask you. Uh, at this point, I feel the, the, they, they, their desire, I, I don't know, maybe I was wrong, but I, this is my question. Their desire to preach the gospel to the Lamanites uh, seems to me is, is all about mission driven. It's because they read something and then they feel like this is what we should do. Yeah. But I, my question kind of weird. Uh, That's a weird question. We handle weird questions here. We do. So what, what do we handle about mission driven actions to preach the gospel versus to uh, do it out of Christ's love? Did they love those people when they do it? Did they did they have feeling for these people, or they just do it for a mission? You know, ah. like a, like a send, sending the sending out. So we are going to the Mars, and then we, we go to the Mars, but we don't even really like the Mars. Or exactly. What was their minds? What was their mindset? Uh, is it was it? Mission driven, or was it in going out? Was it more mission driven, or did they have something else? Was there any record to record uh, their knowledge, their love, or they really love caring for those people? For those people, yeah. You you know, I remember as a uh, she's asking, what was the real thing driving them as they're going out to these missions? Do they really love these people, or was it about just keeping a commandment in order to go? Um, I remember as a young missionary going off to England uh, in all honesty at 19 for me going on a mission was about me being able to come back and look like a studly returned missionary (laughs) I'm going to come back and look really good because I'm going to go do this hard thing and everybody loves returned missionaries and I went off to do that and I think that lasted about four months And somewhere about that time, as I started to, we had baptisms and we started working with these people and we were sitting in their home and I would see that and the stuff like that, it shifted for me. It became about really beginning to love the people that I was serving and, and, and felt a deep love. So I think it's both true. I think there's a variety of reasons why we go and serve. But I think there's a reason why we keep serving. If we don't, if we don't love the people we serve, this is a hard church. And that is hard to just kind of do it out of a sense of commandment. We start looking for reasons not to serve. Uh, so I, I think they got there. But I think there was also the moment too as they're reading the Book of Mormon and they're being filled with the Spirit. Whenever you're filled with the Spirit, what's the first thing you want to do with that Spirit? Share, Share it. I think just the, the Lord's power always flows through us and we want to be able to share uh, and do that. Um, Okay, so here's what's going to happen then. Um, The Lord is now going to send Oliver Cowdery. Uh, He's also going to call Ziba Peterson and uh, Peter Whitmer uh, to go on this journey to the Lamanites and to see if they can't find somewhere out there is the city of Zion. We don't know where it is. Uh, Oliver Cowdery is going to make a covenant with the other, with the other brethren. Uh, he's going to say, I, I covenant with you that we will serve, that we will preach the gospel to the Lamanites, and we will place a pillar on the site of the memorial where the New, where the New Jerusalem will be. I covenant with you. The brethren covenant back. Now, of that original group, another guy goes, steps up, and it's Party Pratt. Party Pratt goes, you're going to the Indians, really? Wow. That, you know, I moved to Cleveland getting ready to preach to the Red Man, and then I felt like I should go to Palmyra for some reason, and then I talked to this Hiram Smith guy who introduced me to the Book of Mormon. I was baptized. Now I joined the church, but I want to preach the gospel to the Indians. Can I come? Please, please, please. Yeah, okay, we'll add one more. So now we got four. So our brethren of four are now going to make their way out of, out of uh, Fayette, Manchester. Now they're going to come down. They're making their way out there. But the first place that Parley wants to go is where? <coughs> Kirtland. Because 
uh, Parley had been living outside of Kirtland. Uh, in Kirtland uh, was a group of uh, Campbellites. Now the Campbellites believed in a, a um, that, that we should have the gospel, the, the church of the past should be brought forward and it's going to be everything but it won't have spiritual gifts. Reverend Campbell didn't believe in spiritual gifts. But he had a young protege by the name of Sidney Rigdon who did. And Sidney starts two congregations. One in Mentor, one in Kirtland. He has 50 congregates in each one. And they love Sidney Rigdon. He is polished. He is educated. He is uh, an articulate speaker. He stirs people up. Uh, they love listening to Sidney Rigdon. He's a great speaker, and he's about 13 years older than, than Joseph. Okay? Now, Parley is going to go to him, um, and he's going to present him a Book of Mormon. Uh, because he remembered how great Parley, or Sidney was, so he's going to preach the gospel to Sidney. Uh, now, as we know, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Sidney Rigdon is an interesting character. If you, if you don't believe in the church and you want to attack the church, you have this real problem. And that is, it's, it's uh, I have this rube, this uh, money digger, this backwoods country boy, Joseph Smith. And I really want to put him down as being a real, as just being a lame, uh, pretentious fraud. But the Book of Mormon is a problem. What, so, so one of the things that you see, and I, and I, and they are still doing handstands today. How do we account for the fact that Joseph is an idiot, and the Book of Mormon is as magnificent as it is? That there's got to be a problem. And so, one of the solutions is, it came from somebody else. It had to be somebody else. So there is a belief, especially those that heard uh, uh, Sidney Rigdon start preaching in upstate New York before they moved to Kirtland. Sidney Rigdon. Maybe it's Sidney Rigdon. And I promise you, even today, if you go out and you start looking at anti-Mormon websites, uh, which I wouldn't do for very long because I'm just soul-sucking, um, they're still trying to figure out how do we get Sidney Rigdon in upstate New York in 1829? Because that solves a lot of things. Get Sidney Rigdon there, make Sidney Rigdon the author of the Book of Mormon. Now we get rid of the Rube Joseph and the Revelation and the inspired stuff and, and God in the, in the grove. Everything goes away if we can just get Sidney Rigdon to Palmyra in 1829. Solves all our problems. And they are still doing it today. I was just reading one just the other day. That how he surreptitiously snuck his way up there uh, and was feeding Joseph like the transcript that Joseph would then write up. They just really want it to be Sidney Rigdon. Really want it to be Sidney Rigdon. Okay? Now, as a side note to that, um, yeah, that's a little bit, hold on here. Let's we need to animate this. Hold on. Good. Okay. And better. Okay. Sidney Rigdon's son. Uh, show give you some idea of how what a spiritual guy he was. He names his son John Wycliffe Rigdon. <laughs> Near the end of Sidney's life, Sidney is on his deathbed in Pennsylvania. John Wycliffe Rigdon shows up to interview his dad. This is and here and and this is decades later. This is what he says. You have been charged, John said, 
with writing that book and giving it to Joseph Smith to introduce to the world. You have always told me one story that you never saw the book until it was presented to you by Party Pratt and Oliver Cowdery. And all you ever knew of the origin of the book was that what was they told you and that Joseph Smith and the witnesses uh, claimed to have seen the plates had told you. Is this true? Remember the stories, this is like 1880 uh, and, and they're still out there. If so, alright. If it is not, you owe it to me and your family to tell it. You're an old man and you will soon pass away and I wish to know if Joseph Smith in your intimacy with him for 14 years has not said something to you that led you to believe that he obtained the book in some other way uh, uh, other way than he told you give me all you know about it that I may know the truth Isn't that great My father, he recorded, raised his hand above his head and said slowly, so, so picture that, okay, with tears running down his cheeks, My son, I can swear before high heaven that what I have told you about the origin of that book is true. Your mother and sister were present when that book was handed to me in Mentor, Ohio. And all I ever knew about the origin of the book was that Parley Pratt, Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith, and the witnesses who claim that they saw the plates have told me. And, and in all of my intimacy with Joseph Smith, he never told me but one story. And that was that he found it engraved upon gold plates in a hill near Palmyra, New York. I believed him and now believe he told the truth. He later added, Mormonism was true. Joseph Smith was a prophet and this world would find it out someday. I just think it's interesting how fast they tend to kind of uh, throw stuff like this away. But a deathbed repentance or a deathbed confession is, is admissible in court. They like that. The Rigdonites would, would tell, when they broke off, but, but, by the way, poor Sidney, after he's kind of rejected in New York, in uh, Nauvoo, and he goes back to Pennsylvania, uh, true story, they, they, uh, they believed that the millennium was coming and they kind of rallied around Sidney Rigdon. Uh, and they would actually have this kind of ceremony where, in their meetings, where they believed that at some point they were going to get caught up. So, so what would happen is, is they would all get ready, and the idea we're about to be cut up would be like one, two, three, jump, and then no, we're back down again. Okay, one, two, three, jump. No, we're still here. You know, and they just like one of those jumps would whoa, and we'll get caught up. So, so belief was. Uh, remember, um, I I really believe when Oliver when Sidney Rigdon shows up in Nauvoo. Uh, and this is like six weeks after the martyrdom and he gets there two days before Brigham Young and the brethren do he says um, an angel came to me in Pennsylvania and said that uh, Joseph had been killed and that it's my job to be the conservator of the church that Joseph took the keys with him that I'm now to rescue the church and, and bring the church forward uh, from this point on. But the interesting thing is, Sidney knew it the day that Joseph was martyred. When he dates back to the, when the angel visited him, it was within a day, it was within 24 hours of Joseph being martyred on, on June 27th. Okay? And it would be a month before Brigham Young and, and uh, Party Pratt and those guys would actually know for sure. They felt darkness that day, but didn't know why. It would be a month before they knew the truth in the New York papers. Sidney knew it the next day. How'd Sidney know? Satan. Yeah, he was deceived by an angel of light. So he came to Nauvoo saying, I saw an angel, and the angel said, I'm supposed to take over. He wasn't just assuming it on his shoulders. He believed he was supposed to do that. So the Rigdonites kind of rallied around the idea that Sidney had seen an angel uh, and that he knew.
basically, yeah. And that makes sense that Satan would say that that the keys were taken sure. to heaven because God said that the keys would never be taken from the earth. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that it had. Yeah, and when we get to the succession of the prophet, you'll see how that works in in March of 1844, where the keys are being rolled off onto the shoulders of the of the. But when Sydney left Nauvoo, they hadn't yet worked out succession. They didn't know Joseph didn't know until the spring, like 90 days before he died, exactly who would succeed him. He thought it might have been his son. So that that had not yet quite been revealed. So anyway. So that that's Sidney Rigdon. Okay. Now, let me go back here. So Parley's gonna is gonna introduce the Book of Mormon. Uh, people who knew Sidney Rigdon said he'd kind of been walking around for weeks believing something big was gonna happen. Something big was going to happen. Well, the big thing happens. They show up with the Book of Mormon. He studies it uh, for a couple of days, and then he requests to be baptized. He says, I think this is, this is true. This is what I've been looking for. Uh, he joins the church. He then goes to his congregations. He walks into the church in Menden. He says, I've joined the Mormonites. Here's the Book of Mormon. It's true. And the, and the, the, this church in Mentor said, no, not so much you need to leave. They kick him out. He forms another church in Kirtland uh, and over the next three weeks 127 folks are baptized. And within three weeks suddenly the church has doubled in size from what's in New York. And it's happening very quickly. Now uh, he has a good friend by the name of Edward Partridge uh, after he joins the church and Parley and, and Oliver say, well, we're, now we're off to the Lamanites. See ya. And they've already set him apart to, to run the, the church there. He and, he and uh, uh, Edward Partridge and John Murdoch are, uh, are going to run the church in Kirtland. Uh, Sidney does the most natural thing. He wants to go meet Joseph Smith. So he, he and uh, Edward Partridge, then uh, it's now November, they head on up to uh, uh, Harmony to go visit with, with uh, Joseph. Now, I, I have to imagine, imagine that moment when they knock on the door and, uh, and it's like, Joseph, I'm Sidney Rigdon. Great, who are you? Well, uh, Party Pratt and, and uh, Oliver Cowdery baptized me. Here I am. By the way, there are hundreds of saints down in Kirtland that have been reading the Book of Mormon and believe it's true. Wow. How cool is that? Okay. Um, and, and not only that, I think Joseph is looking at Sidney Rigdon, and we've talked before, Joseph always had a bit of a, of a temptation, a soft spot for who? Older, educated, more erudite people. Well, suddenly in the midst of his little group here that he's trying to get going, here shows the, uh, this polished, articulate preacher who believes in the Book of Mormon. I have to think Joseph about passed out. <laughs> this would be the most exciting thing ever. Because Joseph didn't see himself as a preacher. How did Joseph see himself? Apparently I'm a prophet and I'm a seer and a revelator, but I'm not a preacher. And I'm not a really good public speaker. But Sidney Rigdon shows up, and Sidney Rigdon, oh my goodness, Sidney Rigdon is everything that Joseph isn't. So, the first thing that he's going to do with Sidney is, what, what, what would he do? But what's, what's the first step with Sidney? Give him the priesthood. He's got the priesthood. In those days, what was converting an awful lot of these close associates of Joseph? Besides the Book of Mormon. Having those little rallies and teaching and... Even, even more than the little rallies. Oh, okay. A revelation. A revelation. 
One of the wonderful things about Joseph that convinced everybody that he was a prophet was not just that we have the Book of Mormon, but God is speaking to you in a revelation in the first person. I am God and you are Sidney. And it didn't matter whether it was John Whitmer who said, I will be your scribe if you give me a, a revelation. Or Martin Harris, I will deed my farm if you'll give me a revelation. Everybody was, was so influenced by the fact that, that revelations from God in the first person were coming through Joseph Smith. And they would see Joseph Smith almost, and he's just kind of the conduit, but it's coming from God. So the first thing that's going to happen is Sidney's going to get a revelation. Okay? And that's what happens. Okay? So let's go to DNC 35. Now, picture this for a second, though. You are, you are Sidney Reagan. You've been preaching the gospel. You love the gospel. You want to know. You've now joined this church. Uh, you, you're, you're a, uh, a Bible-believing, looking-for-the-millennium kind of guy. And, and listen to this. Verse 1. Listen to the voice of the Lord your God, even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, whose course is one eternal round, the same today as yesterday. Okay? Verse 2. Sydney, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified for the sins of the world, even as many as will believe on my name, they shall become the sons of God, including who? You. Even one in me as I am one in the Father, as the Father is one in me, that we may be one. That would hit a particular chord with Sidney. One of Sidney's followers was a wonderful man by the name of Isaac Morley. Uh, Isaac Morley had a farm in Mentor just outside of Kirtland and, and Isaac Morley and when, they read, when they were reading Acts, Acts said they had all things in common. Right? And so Isaac invited, uh, and these believers in Sidney Rigdon were inviting people onto their, for, onto their farm to create something that they called the family. And the family was a collection of saints who were going to have all things in common, all things in one. It's the early runner, really, of the United Order. The family and under Isaac Morley. It didn't work really well because they didn't have all the principles figured out how it would work. Uh, people kept like, like one guy walked over to another one of the brethren and, he, and took his pocket watch. And he says, well, how come you're taking my watch? Well, he, he says, it's really our watch and I need it. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't working really well. But there was this desire to have everything in one. And that was part of what Sidney had been teaching. So this revelation comes along and says that, we, that you may be one in me as I am one with the Father. As the Father is one in me, that we may be one. He's hitting all the right notes here. Okay. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto my servant, Sidney. He is standing in front of a man who is receiving a revelation from God personalized to me. I am Jesus Christ. You are Sydney. And we think our patriarchal blessings are powerful. <laughs> and they are. Uh, but to be in the first person like this would be a brand new experience for Sydney Rigdon. I say unto my servant Sidney, I have looked upon thee and thy works. I have heard thy prayers and prepared thee for a greater work. In other words, what you have done is acceptable to me, but now I have a much greater work for you. I, I, think, I think he had Sidney in the first two verses. <laughs> I, I really think he did. Okay? Now, this brings up an interesting point. Thou art blessed, verse 4, 
For thou shalt do great things. Behold, thou wast sent forth even as John to prepare the way before me and before Elijah should come. And then this, and thou knewest it not. Now let me stop for a second. So in other words, here's the spirit, he's saying, here's the spirit of Elijah, and he's working with this good man who doesn't yet know about the gospel, doesn't know yet about the Book of Mormon. He's trying to do all these kind of things. Let me ask, how many times does God work with people and fill them with the spirit of Elijah, and they may not even know it? How many good people have walked the earth who were inspired to do things that were preparing the, the ground along the way? People like who? The Reformers. So the, the John Wycliffe, to a certain extent, uh, Martin Luther, uh, uh, William Tinsdale. Maybe all of us. We just lost a good man in Billy Graham. How much, how much good work did he do? Yeah. Sure. And it doesn't mean that the Lord isn't using them to move to move His purposes forward. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I've visited some of these Mother Teresa shelters where the nuns there. I've never seen anybody that sacrificed so much. Where did you Where did you go to Mother Teresa shelters? There's one down there in uh, this this sister that talked with us, and then two of the nuns visited the storehouse, and they said, "Whatever you want to give us, we don't. We, we invited them to bring a list. They didn't want a list. They just said, whatever the spirit dictates to you." She had she lived in this one nun. She was trained in Calcutta. She says. Mother Teresa sends us to the poorest of the poor. Wow. He's just saying that the uh, they had nuns visit the uh, the storehouse that that were willing to receive whatever the storehouse was willing to give as dictated by the spirit and one had trained in Calcutta. Yeah. Have you seen something about Pope Francis? Yeah. And how what a good good man he is. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. Well, I think we can also mention all the that's a good example of people that kind of caught the roots phenomenon in the 80s and are now family advocates moving forward. I think that's a great point. They're out there researching and studying stuff like that, being impelled for reasons they don't know, but they're but they're doing it. Yeah. I think you can go back even further to like the signers of the. Signers of the Declaration of Independence. They made it so that we have freedom of religion. Yeah. Yeah. Laws that we can still, you know, go out and do missionary work. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, I think I mentioned last time I was. Um, it, it's still the, the images are still kind of in my mind of when we went to the uh, the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in. Um, in Jerusalem, where traditional Catholicism believes that the Savior was buried and that the slab is there that his body was prepared on, and there, and I saw these people that would take their their cloths and they would rub sometimes with a little bit of oil. They would rub their cloth over the slab uh, to something they could take home and use it to heal people when they got. And then, as they prepared to walk into the little tomb area where the belief that he was uh, where the tomb was they were reciting the rosary over and over and just kind of and just and you just watch this parade and as I'm looking at them I'm seeing people from India uh, Africa um, just from all, Koreans Japanese from all over the world have come to this place and I remember thinking these people are going to go home and be better However they believe and whatever we believe about how accurate some of their theology might be. They're going to come home from this place and be better. Serve more. Love more. How can that be a bad thing? Even if, if, even if we don't always agree with the theology. If what they're doing is going to go make them better. 
and then they get to the spirit world and they get the full knowledge in front of them. How long did it? How long do you think it takes Mother Teresa to accept the gospel on the other side? <laughs> yeah, man. How about all of the monks throughout history and the nuns that just tried to serve God and then they get to the spirit world and find they can take all of that beautiful devotion and now it, it can be expanded. So the world is full of really, really good people. They're just trying to, and I think they're, I think they're being prepared. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bring the good that you've got, and we'll make bad men good and good men better. And in some cases, in this life, they're never gonna. Uh, you know, how about how, ma- how many uh, Muslim imams are gonna get to the other side who have dedicated their life to service, uh, and then they get to the other side and they get the full, and they see more. Okay, I just. I just think the world is full of Sidney Rigdons. And in some cases, they're going to get the chance to hear the gospel in this life. Sometimes they're just going to be better. The result of what they're doing. Okay? Um, but anyway. Um, verse 5. Thou didst baptize by water unto repentance, and they received not the Holy Ghost. But now I give unto thee a commandment that thou shalt baptize by water, and they shall receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, even as the apostles of old. And it shall, there shall be a great work in the land. Uh, and then you can go on and read this, this revelation to Sydney. But, but you see the Lord saying, at this moment in time, with the opposition that is now building in upstate New York, and it's getting worse, what needs to happen to the church now? It's got to move. It's got to go. And it's got to go, and we're going to do it actually on the shoulders of... Joseph is coming, but this is going to be, Sidney Rigdon is going to be the forerunner to, to providing a place where the church can dwell in relative safety for about six years. Okay, and it's got to move. Didn't, wasn't there a verse that said that he was called even as uh, John the Baptist? Yeah, yeah. That was sent even as John to prepare the way. So I would think that would really resonate with, with Sydney. Okay? So now what are they going to do then? Now, the gathering now begins. This is, there's about to be now a major shift. There are now a, as many saints in Kirtland or in Ohio. Uh, by the way, it's called the Ohio. <laughs> or, or the Western Reserve. Why would it be called the Ohio? Or the Western Reserve. The area around Cleveland uh, was, this is probably more history than you really want to know, but I'll throw this in for free. Um, the Western Reserve, who was it reserved for? Connecticut. <laughs> they, the, the nation had done a land swap with Connecticut over certain lands and they said if you will give us this land we will give you some land at the bottom part of Lake Erie that will be reserved for you around the Ohio. So what happens is the people in the Ohio the Cleveland area, right, underneath Lake Erie, uh, were New Englanders that were coming out of New England. They were just like the people in Palmyra. A lot of Methodists, a lot of Baptists, they're coming out of New England, they're pouring into the Ohio, because they're actually Connecticut's. Connecticut's? Anyway. So the gathering begins. Um... I'll show you real quick here. So, look at the date. December 30th, uh, December 1830. uh, A revelation. uh, Now, I find it interesting that when I go back in the Joseph Smith papers, uh, each one of these, John Whitmer was writing this in... in, uh, 
this book of Revelations and this revelation starts with a commandment to Sidney and Joseph which I thought was kind of cool okay a commandment to Sidney and Joseph saying <coughs> behold I say unto you it is not expedient in me that you should translate anymore until you go to the Ohio we'll talk more next week about the translation that was underway and it's, it's pretty substantial that's what Sidney's helping him with. But it's not expedient that you should translate anymore until you go to the Ohio and this because of the enemy and for your sakes. The, the, uh, the uh, opposition is getting worse. Um, I say that you shall not go until you have preached the gospel in these parts and have strengthened my church wheresoever it is found, more especially in Colesville, for behold, they pray unto me in much faith. The Colesville saints really are the kind of the spiritual core of the church for like the next decade. Um, they will be the core in Missouri. Um, now, and again a commandment I give unto the church that it is expedient in me that they should assemble together at the Ohio against the time that my servant Oliver Cowdery shall return unto them. Everybody now for the first time is saying, we're saying to everybody in New York, you need to sell your lands and you need to move to Ohio. Now we're going to combine the, the couple of hundred that are up in New York. We're going to combine those with a couple of hundred that are growing in Ohio. And we're now going to gather our strength uh, at, at uh, just south of Cleveland in a little town of Kirtland. Okay. So there's, there's, the, uh, there's the challenge. The gathering's going to begin, and and now you get all of these stories of everybody starting to get ready in the spring and into the late spring of 1831. Now we're going to start gathering, and we know these stories, do we not? Um, the gathering is going to begin. They're going to use the Erie Canal. Um, now, for about the first ones to Kirtland, though, are going to be who? Sydney is now bringing Joseph and Emma to Kirtland. Okay, and we know this story. The first place that Joseph goes is where? The Whitney store. Yeah, he goes to the Whitney store and he walks in. Now, I want you to picture for just a second. How long has Joseph been thinking... I'm just kind of an itinerant, not very smart kind of guy. Uh, through this, net, through the last six months, he is, he is. Uh, they, they publish the Book of Mormon, but he's receiving revelation after revelation after revelation. He's now received the Book of Moses. He's doing the the translation work on the first part of the Bible. Uh, he's beginning to I think Joseph is settling into his role as what he's supposed to be I'm not a preacher but I am who I'm a prophet so when he gets to that point and he's and and he, they're gonna borrow Joseph Knight's juniors sleigh and they're gonna drive the the long and if you've ever driven from Palmyra down to Kirtland that's a haul past Buffalo down there and I've done that a couple of times and it's just a haul so I can, I can imagine them after this long trip in the winter in February in the snow on a sleigh they pull into the pull into the uh, Whitney store and, and Joseph jumps out and he walks into the store and says what? You pray. I am Joseph the prophet. And he's walking into the, the Whitney and Gilbert store. And he's just saying, I, I'm Joseph. Now, that's quite an admission on his part, right? I am now Joseph the prophet. Is he being pretentious? Not so much. <laughs> but it's who he, he's taken on that. You get that sense that who, who is Joseph in Palmyra? The farm boy, the money digger, the fraud, the the somehow you came up with this stupid book. Uh, he, he is stirring up the countryside. 
Uh, he is a menace. He's a problem. You ought to run him out of town. He's deluding all of these good people. See, all these kind of things. That's who he is in New York, in Harmony, in Manchester. Who is he when he walks into Kirtland? I am Joseph the prophet. You kind of get this, this transformation is kind of completing itself where he has an understanding of who he is. Okay. Now, behind him will come uh, Thomas Marsh. Uh, will bring 30 saints from Waterloo. Uh, prior to all of these coming, by the way, uh, I should have mentioned this, Joseph and 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 Sidney Rigdon kind of go on a uh, uh, tour the branches trip. There's a little trip, and they will they will tour uh, Colesville and Waterloo and Manchester and Fayette. And this is the ch first chance that everybody's had a chance to hear Sidney Rigdon speak. And there's kind of an excitement, it's like. Oh my gosh, this guy's really polished. This is, he's not, one of these is not like the other. <laughs> and they do all of these things. And uh, by the way, let me back up. I tried to, one reason I copied this, this is the old courthouse in Waterloo, New York. The last place that Sydney will preach will be on the steps of the Waterloo, New York courthouse. And he's going to say to the saints and anybody else listening in the courthouse area, flee now, calamity is coming. You know, uh, oh Babylon, oh Babylon, we bid thee farewell. <laughs> we're out of here. And we're going to the, the Ohio. And off they go. Okay? So, Thomas Marsh uh, is going to bring 30 saints from Waterloo. The Colesville Saints, we think about 60 to 70 Saints from Colesville will, will make it over to the Erie Canal. Uh, they're going to run in, but it's frozen. They can't move. So the Colesville Saints are kind of waiting on good weather and the ice to break. And about that time, who shows up? Lucy Mac Smith. Mama Smith. Father Smith has already gone on to Kirtland. Lucy is going to take over and she's going to bring about 50 from the main, primarily the Manchester area. They make her the leader. There are a number of other guys running around and they go, no, we want Mama Smith to be in charge. <laughs> okay. And she's going to put them on the uh, barge. And from, from time to time, you can read her accounts where they were, some of the young girls were flirting with the sailors. And some of the older guys were complaining about the food ain't so great. And it's kind of cold. And it's taken forever. And, and some of them were saying, maybe we should be, because of the opposition, maybe we should be like traveling incognito. Let's not tell ever, anybody that we're Mormonites. And Lucy gets up on a soapbox on the barge <laughs> and say, not quit flirting, quit complaining. We are Mormonites. We believe in the Book of Mormon. Knock it off. And God was going to open a way. And they went, okay. <laughs> well, and then, but they're waiting. Here's the problem. So the, the, so the Colesville Saints are waiting for it to break. Uh, she's going, no, we got to get down there. So she, ha she starts to pray and she will issue a prayer. God will open a way. And it's told dramatically. I don't know if it exactly happened this way. But the way that it's told in the book that she wrote, she says, God will open a way. Crack. <laughs> right behind her they hear the, the, the ice is breaking. And, and the, the, the uh, pilot of the barge says, I think we can go. And the Colesville Saints are saying, well, I don't know. And she goes, we're out of here. And off they go. And, of course, the ice parts. And they make it safely down into Lake Erie, where then they can uh, travel down and, and embark at Cleveland. Okay? Um, but... And then the ice reforms, and it's another, it'll be another month before the Colesville people are actually able to get down there. Yeah. So this is May 11th, and the rest are going to show up at the end of May. Uh, Martin Harris is bringing about 50 mid-May. They're going overland. Oh, 
Um, anyway, so by by the about the first week of June, uh, the New York phase of the restoration of the church is now over, and we are now all located in Kirtland. Uh, now. What I want to kind of get into next week is the fact that now you're going to get this mixing of the New York Saints and now you're going to have the Kirtland Saints and they're going to try and figure out how this works. And like I said, the sacrament meetings you would not recognize. Uh, and we'll talk more about that and some of the shenanigans that happened in those sacrament meetings when they started combining that summer all of these saints together in Kirtland. Um, any any comments on any of this? We just to me it's just fascinating history. But I and the stories we've heard, it's just helpful to have a narrative. We start pulling it together and we see how this whole thing is un, un, unraveling or un, not unraveling un, unfolding. <laughs> it raveled. It didn't unravel. It raveled and unfolded. The Erie Canal was fairly new at this time. It was. It had just opened in 1822. So that's kind of like more preparation. Yeah, the, it was going to provide a conduit to get all these guys out of there, and it didn't even last that long. It, it was, uh, but long enough. So, um, I, I again, I bury my testimony. I just, I, when you look at how the Lord is moving, you're watching very carefully Him saying, uh, "When the Lord, when Joseph needs help, I will raise up an Oliver. When Joseph needs to expand the church, I will raise up a Sydney." And these people come at the right time and in the right places, and the Lord is certainly behind that. Um, I bear you my testimony, it's true, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.